This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Okay, let's uh, go to God in prayer. Okay, dear Father, as we come before you this morning, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much that it speaks powerfully and truthfully of your son Jesus. And we pray that as we read these words this morning, they really put us uh, into that scene 2,000 years ago and to really understand uh, who Jesus is and to encourage our faith in Him. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My mother used to say to me uh, when I was very young, uh, there is none so blind as those who choose not to see. And she used to say this quite often to me, so I must either say something about my mom or me, right? Uh, but I often found that she was right because uh, time and time again, I would refuse to listen to her, even though she was telling me what was uh, very obviously true. And time and time again, I would actually uh, find myself in some spot of bother because I was blind to the reality of what was true. And I think that's true for many people that I see around me. I remember a relative of mine who used to smoke very often. You might think that a lot of my relatives smoke, right? But I have a relative of mine who smokes as well. And this relative used to say, oh, you know, smoking is okay, you know, because look at your grandfather. He smoked and then he lived up to 95. I'll be fine. So he used to smoke and then he ended up getting uh, cancer as well, just like my grandfather did. I had another friend of mine uh, who used to uh, drive his car really recklessly. It was so bad that I remember once I said, oh, I'm not going to sit with you anymore because you just drive too recklessly. Sooner or later, you're going to get into a car accident. And he said to me, no, 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 I'm very skillful, you know. I won't get into a car accident. And sure enough, um, a few years later, he actually did get into a car accident and a friend of mine who was in the car with him broke his leg. So here were people who were really blind to the reality of what was in front of them. They chose not to see what was in front of them. They would block out the truth of what was happening. And here in the book of uh, Mark chapter 2 and 3, we actually see a very similar thing. So, as we look through the book of Mark, we've seen, uh, as we see in the next slide, that Jesus has claimed various things about himself or has been spoken about various things. So, Jesus is the Christ. Okay, so Jesus said a few things about himself, that he is the Christ, he's the everlasting king, he's the son of God, he's divine in himself, and he comes to bring about the kingdom of God through the forgiveness of sins. And as we've been going through the book of Mark, we've seen that there have been clear signs, very clear indications of these realities being true in Jesus. So Jesus came and he had the authority to be able to heal. He had the authority to be able to heal. He had the authority to be able to teach with great power and insight. He was able to cast out demons. He was able to basically do everything that he said that he would be able to do. So in this way, we see that Jesus really is able to bring in the kingdom of God through the forgiveness of sins. But as we've been going through, as we saw last week, at the beginning of last week, we saw that the religious leaders, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, are now introduced into the story. And these group of people are not impressed. Like They are the first group of people who are not really impressed about Jesus. They're not really amazed about Jesus. They don't appreciate Jesus at all. If anything, uh, they are really quite hostile and angry 
and opposed to Jesus. So they are they're really hostile and angry to Jesus. And you can see that, right? As, as they go through uh, each incident with Jesus, the hostility and anger is building up against Jesus. So instead of actually following Jesus, recognizing Jesus, or even sincerely trying to find out if Jesus is the Son of God or the Christ, they feel threatened by Jesus, they feel confronted by Jesus, they feel undercut by Jesus, disrespected by Jesus, undermined and insulted by Jesus. So today we're going to see, uh, as we go through the next uh, two chapters, chapter 2 and chapter 3, uh, a series of conflicts and controversies between Jesus and these religious authorities, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So the first conflict or controversy is found in chapter 2, verse 18, right? And we call this the fasting controversy. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, okay? Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the, and of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Now, if we look at the Old Testament, uh, not many of you have done the Bible study, but there's actually quite a lot of uh, Bible references there which you can look at. And I hope that in your own time you can do the Bible study. You'll see that actually, according to the Old Testament, there was only one day of the year which God said that God's people had to fast. And that was the Day of Atonement, right? So one day of the year, they were supposed to fast. So looking at the passage here, it's unlikely that... Uh, uh, they were, they were asking Jesus, you know, why are you not fasting on the Day of Atonement? Uh, it's more probable that what's happening here is that they were following the rituals of the Pharisees, which really meant that uh, the Pharisees at this time, according to the historical records, used to fast two days a week, okay, which was Monday and Thursday. So uh, these people, uh, they may have been Pharisees themselves, were coming to Jesus saying, look, why is it you are claiming to be a religious leader, but you're not behaving like the Pharisees. You're not fasting like them. At the same time, John the Baptist's disciples were fasting. The John the Baptist's fasting probably was in response to repentance. So John the Baptist had come, if you remember, in chapter 1, and he preached a message of repentance in preparation of Jesus' coming. And so, again, if you read the Old Testament, uh, many times uh, when people repented, when people uh, mourned of their sin, they would fast. Uh, so if you, if you read back to Jonah, when Jonah went to Nineveh, uh, what did the people of Nineveh do when John, uh, Jonah came? They fasted. So they were asking, you know, why is it the Pharisees are fasting? Why is it John the Baptist was fasting? But you are not fasting. So Jesus then uh, gave them three, in a sense, proverbial sayings to show why it was inappropriate for his disciples to fast while he was among them, while he was with them. So he gives them the first proverbial saying, which talks about uh, the bridegroom or a wedding. So in verse 19 it says, Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day, they will fast. Now, we know that uh, in today's day, 
weddings can be very boring and tedious events, right? You know, you go there and you have to wait a long time because people come late and then you end very late and maybe the food is not 100% very good. But in the ancient world, actually weddings were times of great joy, right? great enjoyment. Because in the ancient world, it was one of the few times where you could actually eat meat. Right? You know, in those days, meat wasn't very plentiful. And weddings were a time where there was great celebration, they would slaughter cows, and the wedding wouldn't just last uh, one day or one night, but it would actually last a few days up to a week. And uh, in those days, they would have music, right? And, you know, in those days, it wasn't like you had radio or Spotify. So you'd have music, you have friends, you have good food, you have uh, a great celebration. And uh, I guess even today, if, uh, if you do practice uh, intermittent fasting like our associate pastor Y does, right, you know, if, if you invited Y to your wedding, you would presume that he would forego his fasting just for that uh, night because, you know, he would, he would want to celebrate with you, right? So in the same way, Jesus is saying, look, he is like the bridegroom which has come into the world, right? He is the Son of God. He is the Christ. He's bringing the kingdom of God. It should be a time of celebration, it shouldn't be a time of mourning, a time of sadness, something associated with fasting. It was right for John the Baptist's uh, disciples to fast, because John the Baptist, remember, he was the preparer of the way. He was like the messenger of Jesus. So if you look at the slide up here, uh, remember John, when John came, baptizing the desert region, and he was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize with water, but he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So now finally the one of the Holy Spirit has come. The one who is bringing the forgiveness of sins has come. So a new age has broken in. Right? A new time has broken in. And so they're not meant to fast. They're meant to Celebrate, because finally this bridegroom has arrived. The Son of God, the Christ, the one with the Holy Spirit. Now in verse 21 and 22, I think Jesus goes from this narrow application to this question of fasting to a much broader application. Right? He's trying to look at his whole ministry, his whole person and the reception to himself. So I want you to turn your eyes now to verse 22, 1 to 22. Because this is very important, right? No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Now, I think here Jesus... It's not just looking at the narrow question of fasting, but his very person himself coming into this world and the reception that he's receiving, especially from the religious leaders. Now, in the ancient world, uh, it's not like, you know, they buy many clothes and have, uh, you know, Uniqlo and H&M and like cheap Pasamalam clothes. Most people only have like one or two or three sets of clothes at the most. So you constantly be repairing your clothes. Now, in those days, uh, they didn't have like synthetic uh, clothing, so you have natural uh, materials for your clothes. And so everybody would know 
that old clothes shrink. Oh, sorry, new clothes will shrink over time, right? So your old clothes will kind of like become very stiff and hard. So you would never patch your old clothes with a new cloth because the new cloth over time will shrink and what will happen? It would tear the clothes that you had. And if you only had one or two or three, well, that's uh, you know one less that you have now, right? So for myself, I was thinking, okay, how do I reflect this? So, okay, so I, have a, I play golf, right? So you know, when you play golf, you wear these golf gloves. And when you first buy the golf glove, it's like very soft and supple and very stretchable. But after a while when you play with it, it becomes very stiff and hard and it becomes very tight on your hands. So it's exactly the same understanding, right? You can't use uh, the new leather and patch it onto the old leather because the new leather will always become smaller and tighter and harder and more rigid and always tear the older cloth. And again, in the olden days, they didn't store their wine in wine bottles. Uh, they would store it in animal skins. right? So uh, they would basically use the whole animal and then they would close up all the open ends and then they will fill it with wine. And so again, when you first uh, when you first get a new wine skin, it's very soft and supple like a golf glove. And when you put the wine in, the wine will ferment. And so because the the wine skin is very supple, it will be able to expand and accommodate for the gases in the wine. But if you would put the wine into an old wine skin, well, it, it's like an old golf glove, and the old wine skin would burst because it won't be able to stretch with the gases and expansion which comes with the new wine. So what is Jesus saying here, talking about wine skins and clothes? I think what he's really saying here is that his coming into the world, the new age, uh, the kingdom of God, cannot be contained by the old way of thinking, uh, by their old rituals, the old expectations, the old traditions. Uh, it's almost as if you're trying to contain uh, God's presence and God's kingdom within something which is too small and too tight. Right, it's almost like um, you're trying to fit a big pair of feet into a small pair of shoes. Right? Or you're trying to fit a really uh, round, big round object into a square hole or a square object into a big hole. It just doesn't fit. And I think what, that's what Jesus is trying to say. He's trying to say, look, uh, him coming to the world as the Christ, bringing the kingdom of God, cannot be contained, cannot be captured, and cannot be fit into their narrow rituals, their narrow traditions and their narrow expectations. They have to clear their mind of these old ways of thinking in order to, to see how big he really is. So I remember the church camp. So I think most of you were at the church camp, right? Uh, so do you remember we had to have this performance at the last night? Okay, so do you remember what we were supposed to do for the performance at the last night? Okay, so we were to make a song or lyric or performance based on the Baby Shark uh, song, okay, this Baby Shark song. Now, uh, actually I didn't know the Baby Shark song until the church camp, right? But I, I, I went to the YouTube, there are like 45 billion views of it or something, it's amazing, right? Okay, so, so that basically, why do we have to, why do we have to uh, follow the Baby Shark tune? 
I mean, I might like Barney. Right? You know Barney? You don't know Barney, right? So I might like Barney. I don't like Baby Shark. Okay, I, I, want, to, I want to make a tune based on Barney, but I can't. Why? Because of wire. Because you know why? And his church camp committee said, this is the tune that we have to use, right? We have to dance to this tune, the Baby Shark. Now, in the same way, in a sense, the Pharisees are trying to say to Jesus, look, you want to come into this world, then you need to dance to our tune. Right? You need to follow our traditions. You need to follow our expectations. But Jesus is saying, no. When God comes into this world, when Christ brings the kingdom of God, He doesn't dance to the Pharisees' tune. He's too big to be contained by the expectations of uh, the Pharisees or even John's disciples. He is essentially the new age, right? And they need to accept him on his terms. Okay, so Jesus brings in the new age which cannot be contained by their old rituals and their old expectations. So we move on then to the next controversy, uh, which is the verse 22 to 23, okay? Which is the Sabbath controversy. So in verse 23, uh, one Sabbath, Jesus went through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Now, uh, what the disciples were essentially doing were, they were going through the grains, uh, grain fields, and they uh, were just, you know, putting their hand out, getting the heads of grain, they were rolling their hands, and then they were eating the, the grain. It's like, you know, popcorn without the pop, right? But this was very controversial for the teachers of the law, the Pharisees. Because according to them, uh, they were guilty of breaking the Sabbath law. And the Sabbath law basically said you cannot work on the Sabbath. So Jesus then replies to them in verse 25, and 26. He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Now what is the point that Jesus is trying to make here? Because obviously King David and his disciples his companions, they didn't eat on the Sabbath. So, so, so what is Jesus really saying? I think the key part to understanding this uh, point that Jesus is making is that David and his followers, his companions, King David, were hungry and they were in need. And what he was saying, I feel, as we read further on to the Sabbath part as well, is that uh, mankind or humanity's hunger and need takes precedence over the ceremonial law. Right? So, it's almost as if uh, the needs of people are greater than the obedience to the ceremonial law. Because that's what he's saying. Like, when they were hungry and in need, King David and disciples, they ate, and somehow God said it was okay. And that links now to verse 27. Right? So, if you understand that actually man's needs take priority over the ceremonial law, then we then understand what verse 27 is saying. Because in verse 27, he says that man 
right, is not the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And this is the same principle, right, as, as, uh, as the King David example, where he's basically saying that God gave these laws uh, not so much as a burden or a great weight upon people, but rather they are meant to serve humanity. So let's think a bit more about how Jesus understands the Sabbath compared to how the Pharisees understood the Sabbath. So Jesus understands the Sabbath as Sabbath was made for man, for the benefit of man, for the good of man, to help man. So if we go back to the original Old Testament passages which talk about the Sabbath, let's see what it says in Exodus chapter 20. So in Exodus chapter 20, I think we read this, or the Deuteronomy passage early on for our responsive reading, but we'll look at it again. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 5. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor the alien within your gates so that your manservant and maidservant may rest as you do. Now, if you look at this passage, you see that the purpose of the Sabbath was two main things, which is kind of highlighted for you, right? It is meant to be for the purpose of holiness and the purpose of rest. So one was meant to honor God, and the other was for the benefit of men and women, which was to rest. And that's why actually, you know today we have the word holiday, right? So if you actually Google holiday, which you can do later, not now, you actually find that holiday uh, was actually a conjunction of the word holy day. It was just a secular way of understanding rest without the religious connotations. So what Jesus is really saying is that actually the purpose of Sabbath was to honor God and for rest, right? Sabbath was made for the benefit of man. So we can honor God and we can rest from our labor. But for the Pharisees, what did they do? The next slide. They made man for the Sabbath. And that means that their understanding of Sabbath was that men and women had to contort and distort and fit themselves into the meaning of Sabbath. So, in the Pharisaic understanding, there were 30 type, 39 types of work which were actually forbidden on the Sabbath, or which one was, uh, you know, getting the grain and rolling your hands, right? So you can see it's like some chemical table, right? 
And it's actually very complicated. But then actually when I did some more research, if you really, really wanted to understand what you couldn't or couldn't do on the Sabbath, even today you can buy this on Amazon, right? The next slide. There's actually this dictionary, encyclopedia book, which gives you like the case law behind understanding each type of work in the 39 categories. So, this is a lot, isn't it? I mean, like, to understand what you can or cannot do on the Sabbath, in order to study all this stuff, you can see it's a great burden on you. So even today, uh, for the very religious Jews in Israel, if you go to Israel, uh, on the Sabbath day, they say that you cannot press uh, the buttons on the lift because pressing the button is actually considered work. Lah. So, if you go to some lists in Israel, the lists on the Sabbath will actually stop on every floor. So that's why, you know, in Israel you don't want to stay too high up, right? Because it'll take a very long time to get there. It's better to stay on the low floor. And then also, I was reading somewhere that there was this um, uh, kind of like riot on this plane because the plane took off late and they were worried that when they landed, the, the plane will actually be on the Sabbath day. Right? Then they're like, I don't know how to get home, right? Because, you know... So, you can understand now why is it and how it is that the, the Pharisaic understanding of the Sabbath was, was such a burden. It was such a, you know, you have to feel as if man was made uh, for the Sabbath, not Sabbath for the man. And that's why Jesus said that they had the wrong understanding of Sabbath. And in verse 28, he goes on to say, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now what is Jesus claiming about himself here? Now if you think about it, who is the Lord of the Sabbath? Now, the Lord of the Sabbath is God, isn't it? Because God worked six days, he rested the seventh day, and then he said, do not work on the seventh day. So he is the Lord of the Sabbath. So Jesus is actually claiming himself to be like God. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. But He's not just Lord of the Sabbath in the sense of creating the Sabbath, but He is the Lord of the Sabbath. Because He alone understands God's true intention for the Sabbath. And He is the one who basically interprets and rules what the Sabbath should be like for us. Now, as we go on to chapter 3, uh, the Sabbath controversy doesn't end there. Now, in the first controversy, uh, Jesus is out on the grain fields with his, his disciples, so they're quite isolated. He's in the countryside, there's probably no one there. And now he's in the city. There are many people, there are many witnesses. And so, the Pharisees are watching him very closely after what happened. Right? So some people actually say that uh, the Pharisees planted the man with the withered hand in the synagogue lah, because they want to see what Jesus is going to do. Because Jesus confronted with this man of the withered hand, he has a few choices, right? He can always come back tomorrow, and when it's not Sabbath and heal the man. He could heal the man quietly and say, hey, you know, let me let me just take you to the corner and then uh, you know heal the man. Because obviously when he heals the man he doesn't say anything if you notice, right? If you pay attention to the text, he doesn't say anything. The guy's hand just kind of heals itself, right? But what does Jesus do? Well you look in this passage Jesus actually asked the man to stand up in front of everybody. Right? He says there in verse 3, the, Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Now you imagine here today, 
in our church service, if I said to, ah, Simpson, I said Simpson, Simpson, stand up. Okay, then everybody, everybody will be looking at Simpson, right? And everybody will be looking at me thinking, what's happening here, right? So Jesus is actually drawing attention to himself. He's drawing attention to what he's going to do. And what does Jesus do next? Jesus, in verse 4, says, Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? Now I want you to pay close attention to the text because it's very important that we pay attention to exactly what's happening. Jesus doesn't speak to the man with shriveled hand and says, Hey, do you want to be healed? No, he doesn't. He doesn't say to the crowd, Is it better to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? No, he says to them. He speaks directly to the religious leaders, to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And he asks them. He says, Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil, to save life, or to kill. And I think that at this point, it's like everything is hanging in the balance. It's like, this is like the, the key point in the whole, uh, the whole of the chapter that we're looking at, right? Because at this moment, this is where the Pharisees and teachers of the law will decide whether they will go on Jesus' side, whether they will decide to get rid of their own old wineskin and their old clothes and accept the new way of thinking? Or will they go back to their old expectations, their old traditions, and their old uh, perspectives? Because Jesus here is basically challenging them on something that's very, very clear, isn't it? Because would you do what is ethically and morally right? Or will you do what is ceremonially right? Because obviously to do good and to do save life is more important uh, than what they were putting their importance in, in, in the Sabbath. But unfortunately, as we look at this point here, uh, the Pharisees and teachers of law have not learned from the previous conversation of Jesus. The one about the old wineskin. The one about the old clothes. They choose wrongly, and they keep quiet. So Jesus says in verse 5 to 6, He looked around at them in anger, and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, He said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. And then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Now, <clears throat> When you look at this uh, passage, this is like the key moment in the interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Because at this moment, they have kind of like made their choice and there's a point of no return. Because here, Jesus looks at their heart and it's not as if they are rejecting him because they have thought through the issue or they have really considered uh, what Jesus has done. Uh, in many ways, they are like the Miss Stubborn, right? They, they can see what Jesus has done. He's healed this man. He's done a great miracle. We don't notice it because it's part of the drama, but he's healed this man of a shriveled hand. And the question that they should be asking is, who is this Jesus, right? 
How is he able to do this? He's done a great thing here. Perhaps he is the Lord of the Sabbath. But because of their stubbornness, instead of asking the right questions, thinking through the evidence, seeing what is in front of them, they decide to grow and plot to kill Jesus. Okay, if you think about it, what's happened here really shows the great divide between Jesus and the religious teachers. Because actually what Jesus has done is a good thing, isn't it? So you click, Jesus did good. He was faithful to God's intention for the Sabbath. And in his healing, he showed that he was the Lord of the Sabbath. But the Pharisees, the next click again, they wrongly accused him of breaking the Sabbath law based on their wrong understanding. And if that was not bad enough, they break the greater law and do the ultimate sin in plotting to murder an innocent man who was the Son of God. So you can really see there's great hypocrisy here because Jesus is actually doing everything right. He is doing good on the Sabbath. He's faithful to God's intention for the Sabbath. He's done nothing wrong. Oh, too far, too far. Back again. Okay, he's done nothing wrong. He actually is showing he's the law of the Sabbath. And the, the Pharisees, with their wrong understanding, are judging him wrongly. And on top of judging him wrongly, they want to murder him, even though he is the Son of God. Now, something seriously wrong here. So Jesus shows here that he is ultimately the Lord of the Sabbath. So now we come then to the third controversy, uh, which is what I call the Beelzebub controversy. So in verse 22, uh, the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So we had the fasting controversy, the Sabbath controversy, and after those two controversies, I think the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they find themselves in a bad place. It is very clear that Jesus has great authority. He's doing all these miracles. You can't deny it. He's healing. He's casting out demons. He has the authority to teach in a very clear way. He's saying, look, this is what God really means. Now, for the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, this would be a very, very challenging time because people would be challenging their position. Like, you guys are supposed to interpret the law, but yet you don't know it. You can't explain what Jesus is doing. You're not following Jesus. The crowds are all following Jesus. So what do they do now? Uh, they spread fake news. Alright, so this is fake news before Facebook. Okay? So they say two things about Jesus. The first thing is that he is possessed. Right? He's possessed. He's possessed by Beelzebub. And the second thing is, they say that by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. So these are the two charges of fake news that they spread about Jesus. He's possessed by Beelzebub, like a prince of demons. Like, you know, he's like the, like the head, the head uh, demon around, right? And he's actually doing all these things because Beelzebub, the prince of demons, has a, you know, he's secretly working. So it's almost like... Jesus is just pretending to be a good guy, right? 
Because actually behind it all is Beelzebul, the prince of demons. He's the one that is uh, empowering Jesus. He's the one that's actually pulling all the strings behind Jesus. So Jesus then says in verse 23 to 26, he says, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. Now, if you look at your Bibles or your handphones or whatever you're using to look at God's Word, you'll see that the word that keeps being repeated is, cannot stand, cannot stand. And for the people in the ancient world, they would be very familiar with civil war, right? They were not democracies like we are today. So, in those days, whenever a king would die, or the king would die in battle, there would always be a period of great political uncertainty. Right? There will be people vying for power, there will be people trying to seize power, and it will be a time of great weakness for that kingdom. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He said, look, if you say that uh, Satan is fighting Satan, or the prince of demons is destroying himself, then then surely the, the kingdom cannot stand. The end will come because you're having like civil war within the kingdom of Satan. He says, oh, that's, that's ridiculous, right? That doesn't make sense. Who believes that sort of stuff? Because Jesus is doing such a great job casting out demons, curing diseases. He's basically destroying Satan. So you're saying that Satan is destroying himself. So Jesus then goes on to say, this is the right conclusion. That's the wrong conclusion, right? The right conclusion is in verse 27. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. <clears throat> now, this is the true picture of what Jesus is doing. See, the kingdom of God and Jesus doesn't enter into a vacuum. It's not as if he's coming to this world and uh, you know it's like a vacuum there. There's, you know, there's, there's no power or realm or kingdom there. He's actually saying, look, Jesus, as king, is bringing the kingdom of God into the realm or the kingdom of Satan. And that's why when you look around, there's so much unclean spirits that Jesus has to cast out. That's why there's so much sickness around. These are manifestations of a world in which Satan has power, reign, and his kingdom. So when Jesus comes into the world, Satan must first be subdued and tied up and stripped of his power. And then Jesus is able to cast out demons and to heal. And that's why Jesus is able to do what he's, able, he's doing all along, to cast out demons, to cast out unclean spirits and to heal because he is stronger than the strong man. The kingdom of God is invading into the world and pushing back the power of the kingdom or the realm of Satan. So we live in a world which is not like a, you know, a neutral vacuum world, but it's actually under the control of different vying forces, Satan or Jesus, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Satan. And Jesus said, look, I'm able to come and do the things I'm doing because I'm stronger than the strong man Satan. And I'm able to bind Satan, and that's why I'm able to cast out these unclean spirits, and also to heal. 
And Jesus then goes on in verse 28 to 30 to say, Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now Jesus, whenever he says, Truly I tell you the truth, uh, he's really saying the word, Amen. Right? Amen, I tell you the truth. So he's trying to emphasize that what he's saying is reliable and true. And he says that these people, the teachers of the law who came from Jerusalem, who said that he has an unclean spirit, they will never be forgiven. Because they're so stubborn in their hearts, right? because their hearts are so stubborn as we saw in the, in the previous section, uh, Jesus is saying that they are unable to see the clear work of the Holy Spirit among them. Right? Remember once again that these are teachers of law coming from Jerusalem. They are like the experts. So if anybody would be able or should be able to, to be expecting God to be at work, it would be these teachers of the law from Jerusalem. Right? These are not lay people. These are not fishermen. These are the experts. But instead of seeing what is clearly before them, which is the Holy Spirit at work, doing these great miracles, they're actually blaspheming the Holy Spirit and calling the Holy Spirit the work of Beelzebub, the work of the prince of demons, the work of Satan. And Jesus is saying is, because of this stubbornness in their heart, because of their defiance and hostility against the works of God himself, they are beyond recovery. They can never be forgiven. And therefore, they will always face eternal judgment. So today we've looked at the three controversies, right? The fasting controversy, the Sabbath controversy, and here, the last one, which is the Beelzebub controversy. Okay, so when you, when you look at these things, it's very clear that Jesus is who he says he is. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is bringing in this new age, which cannot be contained by their old expectations. And he is finally the strong man who overcomes Satan. So in conclusion, I think that uh, what we've learned today is very relevant to us today too. Uh, So recently, I had a guest from overseas who's a pastor. And I had an interesting conversation with him. And he said that actually, uh, someone came to uh, ask him, uh, you know, what does the Bible have to say about uh, you know, LGBTQ? He said, no, unless Jesus says uh, ABCD about LGBTQ, I will not believe in Jesus. Then I read somewhere else that you know, someone else came to speak to the pastor and pastor, you know, what does the Bible say about global warming and climate change? You know, unless Jesus speaks uh, favorably in terms of climate change and uh, uh, global warming, uh, I won't believe in Jesus too. Now, you can see that actually what's happening here is that both these sets of people are trying to fit Jesus into their own little boxes, right? Into their little boxes of understanding of sexuality, into their little boxes of the understanding of global warming, climate change. But what we've seen today is actually Jesus, his kingdom and his person, his mission is so much greater than just your narrow box of sexuality or your narrow box of climate change. Right? When he brings his kingdom in, we're talking about an eternal kingdom, a new heavens and a new earth, 
which is even beyond this earth. So Jesus cannot be measured or cannot be um, kind of judged based on our small little expectations and our small little understanding. Uh, even for us as Christians, we have a temptation too to sit in judgment of Jesus. And we say, you know, I can't believe everything the Bible says about this or that. Uh, I don't really want to believe what Jesus says. You know, I, I want to choose what I'm going to follow. But in the same way, we're trying to constrain Jesus into our own little boxes. Right? In a sense, we're trying to tell Jesus, okay, we want you to dance to this tune, right? Our baby shark tune or whatever. But I'm willing to dance to the tune that Jesus requires us to dance to. But if He is the Christ and He is the one who brings in the kingdom of God, then we need to actually dance to His tune. We need to fit to His expectations, not Jesus fit into our expectations. So as we looked at today's passage, I hope that it's really been an encouragement for us uh, to see that we should not be blind and should not block our eyes out to the majesty of Jesus' person and the majesty of his kingdom. The reality of what he actually brings in and to accept him as he is and not try to fit Jesus into our little boxes and expectations and try to sit in judgment as God over Jesus because he himself is God and he sits over us. And I hope that uh, this Chinese New Year, as we look at this passage once again, that even more importantly, we will not make the mistake of the Pharisees or the teachers of the law, where we try to impose our own understanding, our own perspectives on Jesus, but rather that we listen to what Jesus has to tell us. Let's go to God in prayer. Our dear Father, as we come before us, before you today, uh, we really want to pray that as we look at these three controversies between Jesus and the religious leaders, of that time, then we will see that in every way Jesus was doing what was faithful and good before you, that as the Christ, as the Son of God, He was coming into this world to bring in your kingdom. He did it by powerfully showing His authority to be the Lord of the Sabbath, in teaching it for your true intention, uh, to show how he was truly uh, powerfully manifesting uh, the Holy Spirit. That in every way he was uh, being a sincere witness to his identity as the Christ, as God. He was sincere in his mission to bring the kingdom of God into this world. But yet we can see the Pharisees and the religious teachers all rejected Jesus because of their stubbornness. We pray that if there may be some of us here today who have stubborn hearts and are willing to recognize Jesus, that we would put aside our small perspectives, our narrow expectations, and be willing to see the greatness which really is too great for us to comprehend and too awesome for us to contain. Dear Father, we pray that we may see that as the kingdom of God comes in, it is only able to come in because the strong man of this world, Satan, has been bound and has been overcome and, and Jesus is victorious. And we pray that as a result, uh, we would truly only come to put our faith in Jesus. Uh, for we see that as he brings the kingdom of God, we can only enter in by recognizing him. And we pray for all these things in Jesus Christ. Amen.
Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.